Our scripture reading today comes from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated, please. Well, good morning. I'm Tom, and uh, welcome to the Leewood campus on this uh, crispy, cold uh, Christmas day. Seems like it, doesn't it? Well, the Bible has often been called a good book. Hold on to this thing. Uh, For good reason, because it is the masterpiece of masterpieces. But the good book can also become the bad book when it's misused for deceptive aims, abusive purposes, and nefarious ends. Transparently, the Bible can be taught to say what it does not say, to support deceptive plausibilities that perpetuate almost anything in the world. It can be used or abused better to legitimize abuse, domination, evil, and suffering. And let's remember, Satan is highly skilled at doing just that. In the 20th century, many leaders, for example, in the German Christian church, distorted the Bible, reinterpreting it to fan hateful anti-Semitism, providing Adolf Hitler a veiled religious litimacy in carrying out the unimaginable suffering and horror of the Holocaust. But in our more contemporary context, we also see this. Bible texts have and continue to be used to sanction the destruction of the unborn, to undermine a biblical sexual ethic, a biblical anthropology, and to sanction same-sex marriage. If you ignore certain texts or pull text out of their context or advocate arguments from silence, you can make the Bible say anything you want. And you can blur its moral clarity, hijack its canonical integrity, manipulating text to gain whatever outcome you want to legitimize or meet your needs in illegitimate ways. Tragically, this is the reality that was played out in our nation's history, leading to unimaginable suffering with the chattel enslavement of people of color and later Jim Crow laws. This grave evil was legitimized, legalized, sanctioned, and sustained, often utilizing Bible verses by many Christian churches, leaders, and yes, even some biblical scholars. The painful truth of this is persuasively articulated by Howard Thurman, who became a religious and special mentor to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. 
In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which I highly commend to you, Howard Thurman tells the story of how when he was a young boy, he cared for his elderly grandmother, who actually was born a slave, prohibited from learning how to read or write. Two or three times a week, he would read the Bible aloud to her. He would read to her many of the more devotional psalms, some of the prophet Isaiah, the gospels again and again that she loved. But the Pauline epistles, she would never let him read to her. Why was that? Thurman brilliantly gives us an insight here when he writes these words. When I was older and was half through college, I chanced to be spending a few days at home near the end of my summer vacation. With a feeling of great temerity, I asked her one day why it was that she would not let me read any of the Pauline letters. What she told me, I shall never forget. She said, during the days of slavery, the master's minister would occasionally hold services for the slaves. Old man McGee was so mean that he would not let a Negro minister preach to his slaves. Always the white minister who used as his text something from Paul. At least three or four times a year, he used this text. Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters as unto Christ. Then he would go on to show how it was God's will that we were slaves and how if we were good and happy slaves, God would bless us. And she goes on to say, I promised my maker that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. See, against the dark backdrop of hijacking Holy Scripture to perpetuate such evil, there were some bright Christian lights. In England, devoted follower and parliamentary leader William Wilberforce, the Clapham Group, worked tirelessly understanding what Scripture really taught on the abolition of slavery. One example was the Christian Josiah Wedgwood, who was the maker of the finest china in England all across the English empire. And he created this dish that everyone of the highest classes ate their meals, trying to awaken the conscience of an empire. A slave shackled with the statement, am I not a man and a brother? Other courageous Christians, like one of my dear relatives, Harriet Beecher Stowe, we used to call her Auntie Harriet when I grew up, and Sojourner Truth knew what the Bible really taught and dedicated their lives to expose the horrors of slavery and to abolish it in our nation. Yet it is also tragically true that many Christians and churches did not, quite the contrary, misusing and distorting the Bible to perpetuate slavery and later segregation. Our hearts break at this. But it is a sober reminder 
for each one of us here today of the importance of teaching what the Holy Scripture actually teaches and embracing the moral clarity it brings to our broken world and to injustice. Our text this morning addresses this subject head on. A text Thurman Howard compelling described as used in such evil ways. So what are we to make of this text? Is Paul somehow sanctioning human slavery? Or is he actually doing the contrary? If you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, as a church family across our campuses, we are exploring Paul's brilliant and inspired letter to the Ephesians, every word of it. We are in a section where Paul is describing to first century Christians how the gospel and the new kingdom life it brings radically changes their everyday Monday life. Their marriages, which we have already unpacked, their parenting, and now he comes to the workplaces and economic life. Scholars often describe this section of the book of Ephesians as the household code section. If you were here last week or heard it online, Pastor Andrew wonderfully unpacked this household code language from Aristotle on. So I encourage you to listen to that carefully. So before we dive into this text as 21st century readers, we need to take a bit of time this morning and set the cultural and literary backdrop. Paul and his first century readers lived under the authoritarian, coercive, ironclad rule of the Roman Empire where slavery was ubiquitous. Some of our best scholarship tells us that up to one-third, perhaps one-half of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not exactly the same as chattel slavery based on the color of one's skin, as was the case in our nation's history. However, it was still incredibly oppressive, dehumanizing, and it perpetuated a stark social distinction of the powerful and the powerless. Paul lived in a dictatorship led by a man who declared himself to be God. Think about that for a moment. Paul does not have the power or influence to bring change on that kind of cultural or structural level. Paul is, we know from Scripture, a Roman citizen, but he writes this as an imprisoned Roman citizen. And soon, the New Testament gives us this hint, and we are told through tradition, that he soon will lose his life in a beheading by a Roman sword for proclaiming his allegiance to a higher king than Caesar. Rabbi Paul knew his Old Testament cold. In fact, it was memorized. All three sections of it, the Torah, the Kataim, and the Nabaim. He knew his Old Testament. He knew that no one was ever created to be a slave of another fellow image bearer. That it violated the fundamental principles of God's design and desire. Yet he is realistic 
in empowering people to do what they could wherever they were in the power structure of that moment. He puts on his pastor hat here, and he pastors many socially powerless people who live in a broken, unjust context. We also need to understand that as we enter this text, we need to put on our literary hat. From a literary perspective, many of Paul's readers were slaves who heard this letter. And Paul's discussion, and hear me carefully, of slavery is description, not prescription. What biblical authors describe in text does not necessarily mean they prescribe it or endorse it. Often, they simply explain it. Keep that in mind when you read all of Scripture, but here it's so important. In a time where slavery was the cultural norm, and a culture whose mantra as you entered the agora or the marketplace was simply this, Caesar is Lord, Paul will approach this matter subversively. I want you to notice in the New Testament, particularly here, in many of Paul's letters, how Paul continually, with literary sophistication, repeats, Jesus is Lord. With King Jesus as Lord, both the powerless and the powerful now have a new master. This is his main message. All followers of Christ have a new king and now live in a new kingdom. King Jesus, who is ushering in a new kingdom, is a kingdom that radically reshapes the power dynamic. Okay? Thanks for bearing with me a little bit as we come into the text. We need to know that. So here's the text. The text is arranged around two main thoughts, two transforming kingdom truths about power itself. The first emerges in verses 5 through 8, and that is the powerless are highly elevated. And then on the heels with just one verse in verse 9, the second kingdom truth of power emerges, and that is the powerless or the powerful are held to high accountability. Okay, so let's dive in. The first truth. The powerless are highly elevated. Look at me at verses 5 through 8. Paul begins this section, bond servants. Literally, the Greek text is slave. Slaves or bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants, slaves, same word, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free, Okay. So, as thoughtful observers and listeners of the text, Paul's subversive approach is right on his sleeves here. It's on display. Ultimately, Master Jesus is the one we serve. That's his point, main point. Like Paul did with wives earlier in chapter 5, notice again how Paul speaks first to slaves, not masters. Notice the literary proportionality of how much he talks to slaves first. What is he doing? 
This is radically countercultural. Paul is honoring the slave first by addressing the slave first. Do not miss that. He is elevating the powerless in a kind of kingdom Jesus reversal. And if you read the Gospels, you know that Jesus does this a lot. He says things like, where the first will be last, and the last will be first. So Paul is reminding us and reminding his listeners that powerless slaves have an incredible new master. The true man God, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, who knows them, who loves them entirely, who is attentive to them, who delights in them, and will give them their ultimate job review. And, notice, will one day reward them for their faithful service to Christ. And Paul also, notice the text, points them to a longer-term, hopeful, eternal horizon. Notice with me, again, I hope you have your text open, how Paul repeats to the powerless who their ultimate master is, who their true audience is. Notice verse 5, the phrase, as you would Christ. See that? Notice verse 6, as servants of Christ. And verse 7, as to the Lord. Do you see it? Paul doesn't want us to miss this. Master Jesus is the one they ultimately serve. Paul will highlight this in a corollary letter in uh, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, saying, hey, you know, you're working for God ultimately, and you're going to get a reward for it. That's the idea. Now, again, I shouldn't have to say this, but I need to say this because of so much false teaching over the years. Paul does not in any way condone slavery. Quite the opposite. But he is pastoring people, many who are slaves, who live in a very unjust world with massive power inequalities. In fact, often overlooked, is Paul's clear statement to the Corinthian Christians in his letter to Corinth, chapter 7, verse 21. Paul says this, slaves, if you can gain your freedom, the idea is, by all means, do it. Paul says here, I have good news even for slaves, the powerless. In Jesus' kingdom, the powerless will be elevated. So what about the powerful? Here's where he goes in verse 9. Paul reminds them they have a really high accountability to God. Look at me at verse 9. Paul says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. See, it's not just Christian Roman slaves, but also Christian Roman masters that have a new master too. They too live and breathe and work before an audience of one before whom they will give an account one day. Now notice, this is not as true uh, as uh, evident in English. As you know, language doesn't have one-on-one correspondence in English. The language here uh, Paul uses is very forceful to the powerful. He knows that humans can tend to abuse power easily. He uses a very strong word in the original Greek language. This word is only used in the New Testament, I think, four times. Two by Dr. Luke in Acts, one by Peter, and one here. Okay? 
In Acts, particularly in the book of Acts, it's used to describe murderous threats, violence, and imprisonment by legal authorities, religious authorities in one case. Eugene Peterson picks this up, as he often does. He's just was a brilliant scholar of the text. In verse 9, he says, Master, it's the same with you. No abuse, please. Not even in a threat. You and your servants are both under the same master in heaven. And notice, he makes no distinction between you and them. Paul's subversive point to Christian Roman masters who have been operating under a heavy-handed power dynamic says, it is all changed now. Under King Jesus, the power dynamic has been equalized. Masters and slaves are all in the same playing field and must treat each other the way brothers and sisters in Christ would. Now, this is so important that there's actually a small book in the New Testament devoted to this. It's one we skip over easy. It's like one or two pages in your Bible. It's called Philemon in the New Testament. Philemon is the name of a master of a household. It's called the Oikonomia, the household. Remember, we talk about household codes. And uh, he comes to Christ. He hosts in his home, as the first century, a house church where Christians gathered. Okay? So he has a slave named Onesimus. And we know with high confidence, because of other texts, that Onesimus runs away from him from Philemon, and somehow finds his way to Rome, and somehow finds his way to the Apostle Paul. And when you encounter the Apostle Paul, you encounter Jesus. And he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes a Christian, Onesimus does. Paul then sends him back to his home and to Philemon. And in his hand is a letter by the Apostle Paul. And we have it in the New Testament. Paul appeals to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, not as a master or as a slave anymore, but as a fellow brother in Christ. In Paul's brief letter, he presents a kingdom power paradigm that removes any master-slave and places within it a family member. Paul instructs Philemon to view, quote, from the text, to view Onesimus, quote, no longer as a slave, but even more than a slave. And then Paul adds this, not just as a brother, friends, as a beloved brother. Then Paul, Paul goes on to say, so if you consider me your partner, that's an understatement, receive him as you would receive Wow. One of the most fascinating things, now I can't say this with certainty, but with high confidence, that most likely when this letter was read in the house church at Ephesus, sitting in that church service was Onesimus. We know this with high confidence from another text, and it's in Colossians 4.16. Can, can you imagine, just put yourself in, Onesimus, hearing this letter read to the church at Ephesus. I don't know if they said an amen in the first service or first century, but I think Brother Onesimus said, amen, Paul. 
And there's another fun historical connection here. Again, with good confidence, not certainty. But there's a lot of indication that Onesimus goes on. Now get this. Once a slave, now in Christ, becomes a bishop in the early church. Let's remember, Paul is walking in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus told his disciples that while the Roman Gentile world abused power and oppression and domination, his kingdom would radically change that. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, you know, the Roman world, Gentiles, thumb it on you. The uh, literal Greek text has a sense. This is a little my imagination here, but the text is not. I think Jesus puts his finger right in his disciples' face. And literally the text says, not you. Not you. The greatest is the one who serves everyone. He turns it upside down. All Christians, whether culturally more powerless or more powerful, are now bondservants of Jesus. At the foot of the cross, the playing field is absolutely level. Now, sociologist James Davison Hunter, who is a friend and was a friend of Christ's community, one of the finest sociologists in America, wrote a book a few years ago called To Change the World. And uh, he speaks with such clarity, and he's smarter than me to say this, about how Christ radically reshapes the kingdom. Here's what he says. The Son of God was the new Adam. He was both the actual presence and the harbinger of a new kingdom. Everything about his life, his teaching, his death, was a demonstration of a different kind of power. Not just in relation to the spiritual realm, not just to the ruling political authorities, but in the ordinary social dynamics of everyday life. It operated in complete obedience to God the Father. It repudiated symbolic trappings of elitism. It manifested compassion concretely out of calling and vocation. And it served the good of all, not just the good of the community of faith. Dr. Hunter goes on to say, in short, in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, his kingdom manifests the power to bless, to unburden, to serve, to heal, to restore and liberate. Jesus radically transforms our understanding of power in his kingdom. So how do we begin to apply this this morning? Let me suggest two questions for your consideration. First, how are we addressing slavery in our modern world? As tragic as slavery was, it still exists in the world today. It's been estimated. Can you imagine this? That there are 50 million people at least enslaved in the world today. And Gary Haugen, who... Uh, as a friend of Christ's community who's been here, he launched the International Justice Mission, focuses on this around the world, and its stories and statistics are overwhelming. I encourage you to read his books. You won't be the same when you read them. But particularly egregious on a global scale is sex slavery. But it is not just global. It is in our backyard, friends, in Kansas City. I was reminded of this recently in our teaching team. You know, we... Uh, meet every week as teachers across our campuses to work on our messages and look at the text. And one of our most amazing campus pastors is Bill Gorman. He uh, serves our Brookside campus. And 
He's also a chaplain in the Kansas City Police Department. And he was sharing in our teaching meeting something that I thought was really great. He, he works with the police department and they work a lot with human trafficking. It's really tragic and terribly sad. But he said something that stood out to me. He says, I've heard in many training meetings with police officers in our city that one of the ways churches can help combat human, human trafficking, in fact, the best way is to care for single moms in our community. And he said, so many women and children across our city, particularly in the most vulnerable areas economically, end up being trafficked, come from these situations. There are many cases that if someone would just have helped a mom pay the rent, she wouldn't have gotten involved with someone who would eventually enslave and traffic her. And perhaps more moving to my heart is that they went on to say that her kids who are left alone at home because Mom had to work two jobs, end up going online and being exploited and often recruited by predators and traffickers. Once again, friends, we see how much economics matters in this matter of human flourishing and why we care so deeply at Christ's community about economic flourishing. How can we get involved? Well, a couple of things. We can support works like IJM, but even closer to home, particularly the Leewood campus, one of our partners that we support and work with is Rehope, right here in our backyard that offers long-term residential housing and care for women and minor girl survivors of human traffic, trafficking. And if you begin to grasp the ages of some of these young girls, it will just break your heart. The second question is, how are we stewarding our earthly power? All of us need to ask that question. The book of Genesis reminds us that as image bearers of God, each of us were created to exercise dominion, not domination, dominion in our world. In other words, we were created, each of us, to have a kingdom. Our kingdom is where we have personal agency what we have control over, and the exercise of our influence. Hear me carefully. That can be what we choose to do with our bodies or how we exercise our authority as a parent with our children or as a boss in a workplace, whether that workplace is small or a large corporation. It can also be how we communicate and navigate in our presence on social media. It can be how we exercise the power we have been entrusted if we are a public official. Or as we have honored rightly today, military service. Or as professionals. Or as a pastor. As followers of Jesus, we rightly think of stewardship, don't we? When it comes to the dynamics, we often say of the time, talent, and treasure of our life. But do we carefully and prayerfully consider the stewardship of our power? Jesus' words of divine accountability, to whom much is given, much is required, ought to lead each of us to prayerful reflection and regular evaluation regarding the stewardship of our power and influence. How are we using the power we have to lift others up around us? At home, 
at school, in our Monday workplaces, in our under-resourced communities? How are we opening doors, helping others build capacity, and encouraging their God-given dignity, especially those with little cultural or economic power who are often marginalized in our world? How are we using our power of influence and access to be generative to others, particularly an emerging generation? Paul reminds us here in Ephesians 6 how we see power is informed by who we see ourselves serving. In serving others, we are ultimately serving Jesus. And on the path of apprenticeship with King Jesus to gather in local church community in the power of the Holy Spirit, we increasingly live into Jesus' kingdom reign. And doing that, we take up our cross. Each one of us. We put on Jesus' yoke, each one of us. And we pick up a basin and towel, each one of us. And we follow the one who knows us and is known by us. The one who washed his disciples' feet. So as individuals and a local church family of yoked apprentices of Jesus, we are not our own. The scriptures could not be clearer. We are created and redeemed. Our bodies are not our own. We have a new master we love and serve. And through the atoning shed blood of Jesus, we have bought, been bought with the highest price imaginable, the precious blood of Christ. So have you in faith and repentance embraced Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Is Jesus your Savior and Lord today? And if you've not embraced him, would you do that today? And many of you know, I know you have. But what that says is your most primary identity is that you are a bondservant, a slave of Jesus. And all you have and all you are and every choice you make belongs to him. This is King Jesus who Paul describes in his letter to the Philippians, who though in the form of God, quote, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a slave, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. This King Jesus is the one who is truly free with limitless power, who became powerless for you and me. Out of unimaginable love for you and for me, King Jesus chose to lay himself down and willingly die for us to make us free unto him. Paul's language is clear. It's compelling. It's good news. King Jesus is Lord. And the powerless and the powerful have a new master. And that makes all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. May we learn it, instruct it with truth and grace, and embrace it in our lives. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Our every thought, our every choice, our every word, everything we have, you are Lord. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.